0: I finally sat down and said, I think I'm going to tell. How come the medical schools don't teach this?
1: Dr. T. Colin Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell
0: University. If we do it right, if we eat the right food, we get away from drugs, we can be healthy. Campbell has given more than 600 public lectures, written over 300
1: research papers, and been featured in several documentary films.
0: I've written a book with my son, The China Study.
1: How have you continued to persevere in the face of so much malicious actors in pursuing this
0: truth? What's going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain, if you will, is stuff that the public almost never gets to see. Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. There there, there are some folks that are just Trying to solve problems so they can make some money. But what they don't offer is the most important thing. They don't offer the idea of what we can do to stay healthy in the first place. So, Dr. Campbell, it is
1: such an honor to sit down with you. I went plant-based after a cancer scare in college. I read the China study. I went plant-based after reading that, and that was nine years ago. And now to to be able to sit down here and have this conversation with you, it's truly an honor. So thank you so much for your time. Really looking forward to this conversation. So you coined the term plant-based in the 1970s. And since then, you've been a leader in the field of plant-based nutrition now for decades. But you began your career with a much different perspective on nutrition. And in fact, your doctoral dissertation was all based on promoting the consumption of animal products. So could you share that journey from promoting meat and other animal products to becoming a leader in the plant-based field?
0: Well, it actually started within miles of here, believe it or not. I was raised on a dairy farm up just on the other side of Leesburg. And uh, so I was milking cows. That's what we did. And I, I actually traveled from there to Washington five years, over 100 miles a day driving to high school. Wow. To be able to go to a good school was free. My dad only had a couple years of education. So he was a farmer, and I was very close to my dad. And uh, so uh, in any case, I he really pushed an education. Uh, I, so I went there. And then went off eventually to go to Cornell to do graduate work and stuff like that. My graduate thesis at that time was on promoting consumption of more animal protein. I mean, that's my background. That's why I tell you where I came from. Uh, And, uh, I mean, that was the thing. Everybody believed that was important, obviously. I did too. And uh, so I did that. Um, And then... uh, went away to Virginia Tech shortly after that. Uh, and uh, there, I was put in charge of a project in the Philippines, uh, you know, supported by the State Department to feed malnourished children. And there is what I uh, come to learn, uh, partly from my medical colleagues, but also from what I could see with the children. Um, the malnourished children uh, obviously, it was a very sad situation to see that sort of thing. But on, on the other hand, um, there were a few children that were better. They were more likely to get liver cancer. Very odd. I mean, totally strange. And who would have ever thought that? And uh, they were the ones consuming the most protein, like Western countries. So, I, And on the other hand, in that program, we were sort of responsible to make sure in those kind of programs that kids get enough protein. That usually meant high-quality animal protein, if you will. In any case, that was, a, that was a conundrum, to say the least. So I came back from the Philippines, and I had a laboratory at Virginia Tech at the time uh, in cancer and diet. And so I, I appealed for some funding just to look at that question. Is it true that more animal protein... The few kids were consuming the Western College diet. Is it true that it has any relationship to liver cancer? Well, at the same time, there was a study in India, too, with animals, just animals, that basically it was showing the same thing. Animals, you know, are programmed to get liver cancer. If they're fed more protein, animal protein, they get cancer. And it was dramatic, like 100% to 0%. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine anything more striking than that, especially in science, that kind of results. So we came back to Virginia Tech and uh, organized studies study for ourselves to see if that's true. I mean, do we give these kids more protein, animal protein or not? And what I learned over the first, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five years, uh, it, it did. It was spectacular. We We could get to the point where The cancer would only grow when it's fed animal protein. If we drop the animal protein down to just below requirement or replace it with plant protein, the cancer was turned off, turned off, turned on, turned off. And at that point in time, I'm, I'm quite frankly I was quite doubtful in the beginning this was true. So I'm struggling with my own sort of biases in my background. And, but then, you know, we could turn it on, turn it off. Um, and then I had students, graduate students, who would be working on a doctoral thesis. And so we started doing things like, what, you know, what, what's the mechanism? How does this, how can this be true? Because I was warned, don't go down that track. You know, it just can't be true. Um, and even my colleagues in India, who had shown something similar to this kind of a small study, uh, they had dropped it. They didn't want to go down that road. So I was always told, you know, don't be questioning animal proceeds like that. And and being in that camp, by the way, I tend to believe it. But nonetheless, there were the results. So we kept doing it, and finally I, we could turn cancer on and turn it off. And we, as I said, we wanted to find out what the biochemical mechanism is. Uh, and that usually involved a thesis of maybe two or three years of a graduate student. We should look at one thing to see what effect this protein would have in, in the tissue. We learned, for example, that feeding more protein, more of the carcinogen that starts cancer, more of the carcinogen would go in and go into the cell faster. That was kind of interesting. I said, oh, that's the answer. You see, the reason that this is really important because uh, in science, in this area of science at least, when you see something really odd, you want to, you obviously establish whether it's true or not. But then if you do, the next thing to do, prove how it works. That's key. We call that by the term biological plausibility. And so we, we got the first mechanism. I said, oh, that's it. And the reason we do that, then maybe you can get a drug. That's the way the pharmaceutical companies work. You get a drug to block it. And you keep on eating what you want to eat. So uh, we did we did the first one. Another student comes along, and just for the sake of doing his research, I had him look at another mechanism, a different kind of mechanism, had to do with the enzyme in the cell. So in that case, the animal protein elevated the enzyme to activate the carcinogen. That's two. What's going on here? And we kept, we kept asking this kind of questions as we were going along. Finally, after about, I don't know, about 12 years or so, I had a number of students sort of checking out one mechanism. I finally got to a point in my mind that there's no... Which which mechanism here is working? Do I just pick out one? And what I finally came to the conclusion after some years, there's something very different about this whole system. Nutrition is not about one nutrient doing one thing. What we found was when a, a nutrient is being consumed in the form of food... Everything if that nutrient is not good and all the other nutrients are around it in that food, everything goes wrong at the same time. And the response is you know the response is very active. It'll change in a matter of nanoseconds after you eat the food. So it was a whole different dynamic than what exists in science. You don't just take one thing and see what effect it has. You don't know, like drugs, for example. When you're eating food and it's the right kind. Everything just kind of swims along together. I call it Mother Nature. She knows what she's doing. And, you know, we're, we're, when we eat food, there's a whole lot of things come in with it, all kinds of nutrients. And it's just absolutely amazing that something is going on here, that everything is just kind of working. Some things were elevating activity. Some things would decrease, but all of them at the same time ended up in the same place. That's still an idea, incidentally, it's, quite controversial, I have to say. But uh, nonetheless, that's the way it works. So I got into a whole different world of what nutrition was about. And that happened over a period of years, but I'm just saying to go back to the beginning, those results in the rats at that time were so dramatic. And I had to know, do we feed these kids high protein? Or high animal protein? That's where it really started.
1: So I am just astounded by the fact that all we really need to do for our bodies is provide the right nutrition, get sleep, get some exercise, get hydrate our bodies. I'm amazed that we have a few very simple inputs that we need to give our bodies and our bodies will do all of the rest, incredibly complex things. I'm just astounded by the Kind of incredible nature of our bodies. What does the field of biology mean to you after you've gone through your career?
0: Well, that's a good question. I, <clears throat> I, uh, I mean, it really is. Just, I was also astounded, too, to even come to this sort of conclusion. It changes everything, the way we think, and that for the most part, not you know, hundred percent all the time, but for the most part. If we're eating the right kind of food, it turns out it's working to actually repress cancer development, heart disease, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, on and on. I mean, if you think about it, when we're eating food, nature wouldn't have it so that that kind of food, if it's doing something good here, that it would do something bad elsewhere. It doesn't work that way. It makes no sense. So that's what we basically were establishing is that this is a kind of, a, almost like a grand plan. You know, it's all working together, and, and, and that, in turn, is very challenging for the kind of system we have in medicine. Because the medicine is basically founded on the idea that if we get sick, we got problems, um, all we need to do is work out, you know, what what's the mechanism for whatever that is, and then develop a drug, take the drug. And uh, that's, unfortunately, the system we have. Yeah. And that's not how the body works. That's not
1: how it works. So, the New York Times published a story on your China study research in May 1990 and called your work the Grand Prix of Epidemiology. So, most people in that position would be over the moon about getting published in the New York Times, but you were actually kind of worried because you thought this article might sink your career. How did the how did the book, The China Study, come to be, and what was that process from your perspective?
0: Well, that actually started back in the early 1980s after Nixon went to China to establish relationships again. In fact, I was likely to be on his team. That was 1972. I was in the Philippines at the time, and I heard when I would go through Japan and Hong Kong and then Philippines, when I got to Hong Kong, I heard Nixon was going to come to China. It was a surprise, big, big news, and uh, I went to the consulate for the Chinese Communist government in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, you see, was kind of independent in those days; they had their own entity. I went down to the consulate to ask if there's any possibility I might, you know, go to Red China, and uh, so, uh, and then I had to go to the Philippines first. Uh, I, I just left a question. My friend I had brought along to in Hong Kong, he was going to come with me to the Philippines too. And in any case, the next day I went down to Manila. And I, that's when I learned my dad had passed away. So I didn't go. But he in turn told me that after I left, I got a phone call. That the Chinese government had called and said, yes, we'd like to have you. So I missed that opportunity of being with Nixon. But, so I I got really kind of interested in China. And then in 1980 when the U.S. and China were starting to send delegations back and forth. Uh, One of the key delegations that came to this country, about seven or eight, I guess it was, they came to a a university in New York, and then one of them, who was the number one guy in all of China, probably, in cancer research, he came down to Cornell because he wanted to visit with me. And so when we were there, I, I heard that they had this mammoth study of like 800,000 people who died, you know, what they died of. It was a big atlas and all that. And so um, it got very exciting, and I, I I said, well, why don't we, it was a perfect setting to go to China to see why is cancer here, I mean, very high here, and very low elsewhere. And the whole atlas was all laid out so that these different diseases would tend to pretty much concentrate in different geographic areas. So I, I thought it was a really good idea to come to go to China if we could. The U.S. and China didn't have any relations at that time. To uh, set up a study, to why don't we just organize a big survey, you know, measure all kinds of things, take blood samples, urine samples, food samples, so forth and so on, and uh, see what we can see that if we could account for the reason why cancer is high in one place and not another. And so eventually, we got the study. Uh, and, uh, and I had uh, a team with me, the, the cancer researcher in China, this Dr. Chen, a fantastic guy. I mean, they, the, the Chinese had a really, what they called barefoot doctors kind of operation. They had, you know, health workers all over the country and stuff like that, And they were really well organized. And so I also got a, a friend from Oxford University who was an epidemiologist, a statistician type of person. Very well-known, he's world-renowned. So I went to see him, and so he and I and a third person who was the director of the whole atlas got together and formed the team. And the reason I also wanted to do that was because, not only because it was a good opportunity to see you know, why cancer existed here and not there kind of thing. But it was an opportunity for me to see if what I was learning in the laboratory existed in humans. I mean, we were getting spectacular data in the laboratory. It was very exciting. But, you know, it's hard, most people, it's hard to believe. They don't want to say, well, that's That's this, that's something else. But in China, it was a perfect setting. So we we did that study. And then that that was in 1983, 83, 84. And then we spent from 83, 84 until 1990, analyzed it as a m- mountains of data, mostly in Oxford. And then finally, we wrote it up and I got interviewed by a New York Times reporter and that's what ended up in New York, New York Times. And so uh, they were the ones that decided that this was a Grand Prix, as they say, of all, all studies. But it was an opportunity for me as a scientist. I've been working in the lab. I'm learning how things you know, work in some detail. It was hard to believe, but then to go to a human population and see the same thing. But, you know, with different, a different approach to the data. And so that combination of laboratory, human study, if you will, done different ways, getting more or less the same result, that was, that's, I mean, it's hard, hard to describe it. That was amazing. Because all these different diseases, about a dozen different cancers, for example, they all more or less respond to the same thing, you know, kind of occurring or not occurring, pretty much as a function of nutrition. And on the question concerning nutrition, we in those kind of studies you can't conclude exactly what's causing what necessarily, but you can certainly look at trends and correlations and stuff like that and start pulling it all together. And that, yeah, that was that was really exciting. So, in uh, the meanwhile, I'm also very much involved in Washington, you know, in national policy development and seeing. What makes for policy? Seeing you know how does how does our population get to know this or that or something else? And so I had, kind of on one hand I had the evidence of the laboratory, and the other hand the evidence in the human study in China, plus lots of other studies that were going on. You could pull them in. So when you sit down and start looking at this, and you see that the that they're so similar, you know, kind of across the board, and a lot of this we've known for upwards of a hundred years. And it never really came out to the public to know this, to the extent that any of this kind of, they didn't have access to the kind of information I had, because they would tend to work a little bit here, a little bit there. And so we survived for, you know, a hundred years, almost on this idea, this concept, that disease occurs because of something specific we do wrong. We treat it by something very specific. A drug, if you will. And the whole idea of nutrition playing a game in there, playing, playing a part in that, uh, kind of got squashed and pushed in the background. Because nutrition doesn't make money. You know, in that case, all you need to do is tell the people, here's how it works. So it turned out to be a leaning toward the plant-based diet idea. And that, that didn't go over too well. Because the idea of consuming animal protein was paramount. You know, we have to have protein. We call it high quality. That went on for years and years. I mean, I knew, coming from the farm, right near here where we're sitting. And so then I did my doctorate dissertation. I know the game that happened. You know, that we eat that kind of food. We get healthy and big and strong, et cetera, et cetera. And forget about, you know, what human health is really about. So for me, it was a very exciting proposition. You got the human stuff. You got the animal stuff. You got biochemistry, all this kind of thing. I'm in Washington, you know, working a lot there in policy at fairly senior levels. And uh, I could see, you know, my colleagues, you know, really wonderful people, but they didn't have the opportunity to see what I was seeing. And it finally ended up on a National Academy Committee. It was testified before congressional committees and that sort of thing about 1980. And that's when the stuff hit the fan. (laughs) Because now I'm saying things that are just totally at odds with what our system is all about.
1: I'd love to get into that in a little bit more detail. I'd love to talk about the importance of being open-minded in the Field of research. So, the way that you approached the China study was in a really open minded way. And you had some initial hunches based on your work in the Philippines that there was this link between liver cancer and protein. And you kind of had a bias for consuming animal products, even still going into the China study. Now it's about 40 years later, and we still seem to have lots of people in the research and medical fields who do not seem to be that open-minded. How does this change?
0: Fantastic question. I mean, that's, that's actually exactly what I've become uh, concerned about, I guess, in the last 20, 30 years. Um, to sort of pull it all together and ask that question, you know, why does the public know this? Well, from a scientific point of view, my, my understanding, my perception of that whole thing is that we tend to work on one thing at a time. This nutrient does this and this much of this nutrient or, you know, and, and this one does this. We're, we're talking about parts instead of the whole. And when you start thinking about it that way, we do that because parts make money. If we can find a part, you know, a new nutrient or new something else like that, and if we can describe it well enough to get some intellectual property protection so it can be sold, that's the game plan. And people do that, just think that way automatically without realizing, you know, that's a little bit something different. And so it becomes a question concerning, on the one hand, technology— Uh, doing all the wonderful things that we think it's doing, if you will, stands in contrast to nature. So it's like technology versus nature. There's another term we use is technology is based on the parts, studying the parts. Reductionism, we call it. Nature is talking about the whole. So that's holism. So it's holism, reductionism. And you see that kind of play out, that, that contrast play out in our society in many different ways. I just, so that's
1: exciting. So when you were starting to research for your book, whole you were looking for the term holism and it <laughs> didn't, it didn't exist, at least not the WH form of holism. So you coined the term holism with a W-H-O-L-E. What is your definition of holism?
0: Uh. Yeah, I mean you're right. The, the, the W letter in the beginning. I looked at the Oxford Dictionary and the Webster Dictionary, and I thought that at least somewhere along the line that word holism started with an H. That it probably originally meant something about the whole rather than the parts. I couldn't find it, so I thought I'll stick the W there in the, in the first place. But uh, that that concept has such so much meaning. Not just in terms of biology and our the, our body's the way it works, and inside of cells, and then you start seeing all the different cells in our body, all the different organs, all the different this, that, and everything else and and all of a sudden you arrive at this sort of new new world view I think for me at least it was just like seeing nature displayed right in front of me, and we don't have to see that in our society because we always want to do our own thing and everybody has their own... Sp- I mean, I, I can understand that because that's where I came from, too. But the idea of thinking all this here working together was beyond comprehension. It was just amazing. And it, t- it turns out, of course, as you know, it's, uh, it's whole. that refers to plants because what we learned about animal protein is all bad. There's no doubt about it. So I had to change my own mind, you know, coming through this pathway. But then in the turn, it wasn't about eating plants in terms of this nutrient or that nutrient or something else. It's, it's the whole thing. It's, and just eat it that way and let it go. And nature will take care of us.
1: Yeah, so. it's, in, it's incredible, the power of nature and what yeah. our bodies can do, what nature has done with food to provide us with all the nutrients we need. And in the right forms and in the right quantities that we need within within these foods. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the um, kind of a little bit more about reductionist thinking. You've said before, you've used this metaphor that I I think is really powerful, and you've said that you view individual research as threads in a tapestry and all of the individual threads matter but we really need to zoom out and appreciate the entire tapestry and understand how all of these threads work together so with this in mind does reductionism have any place in the field of biology
0: that's a good question by the way your knowledge of this theory is very good I appreciate the questions you. you're asking. You're asking really, really significant questions. Um, in terms of biology, um, you know, by the way, the, the whole is looking at the parts. It's, it is important. I'll just let me say that first, especially in the physics world. Now in the computer world. I mean, there's no doubt about that. We, we want to know each part exactly what it does. And so we can manage it, change it, whatever, and make it work for us. Um, and uh, it's gotten us to the point now where we're talking about AI, which is, you know, everything's sort of working together. In a sense, that's what I've talked about in biology. So back to your question on biology, um, uh, I think, you know, people somehow, they, they're inclined to do, we all, we all do this, but we, we're inclined to do the things that we just do. It's convenient, it just tastes good, whatever, and, and we think, oh well, we don't worry about that, especially when we're younger. If something happens to us, it'll, it'll fix it. Someone will come along and fix it. That's pretty normal behavior and thinking. Nothing wrong. I mean I can, you know you don't blame people for that, but that's the way we think. And then when you come to this particular point in time, it's, uh, the word holism, or as opposed to reductionism, reductionism is the part. holism is the whole, obviously, the whole plan. Um, On the question concerning what we just asked is, you know, is there any place for reductionism in science? There is, obviously. I mean, in biology. Um, Because, you know, things do go wrong, even if we're doing everything right. And so there are times when, you know, maybe a chemical we discover that is not some vitamin or something, not so much a vitamin, but something's wrong, not quite right. We haven't been doing things right. Under those circumstances, there is a place for drugs. I'm not anti-pharmaceutical. You know, when we're doing anything right and something goes, kind of goes wrong, uh, we know that you can take, if you find out maybe one thing that looks like it's not out of order, you know, you can, you can do that. You can adjust it. So I'm not going to say that there's no place for drugs. Uh, I don't take drugs myself. Uh, but... Uh, I can understand why it can't work, surgery, drugs, whatever. So the medical system does have a lot to offer. But what they don't offer is the most important thing. They don't offer the idea of what we can do to stay healthy in the first place. And if we do that, we're not gonna have to worry that much about finding a part here and there to make things work. Just do it right in the first place. And uh, so, yeah. I spent the first, uh, uh, as I say, 10, 15 years of my career professionally in two professions, actually. One, pharmacology. The other, nutrition. It was totally coincidental, I guess you could say, that I'm working primarily on the idea that health works by knowing all about all the different parts. So I really got kind of deep into the pharmacological you know, arena of thinking. That's all about reduction. I didn't know that word at the time, but then when I see it from the nutritional perspective, here's a nutrient and all the things that go around it causing you know creating disease a lot better than those drugs. So I had a chance to see two worlds. And the nutrition won out. Nutrition is so much more superior to the idea of drugs. But then you go to the medical schools, for example, there's not a medical school in the United States, not one, that teaches nutrition. And I, I've come to the point of view that that was almost intentional. Uh, not malicious, but it was intentional because if you think start thinking about food and all the different parts, solving problems, you're ruining the opportunity for business. And so I think people don't particularly want to do that. And so that, that idea of selling stuff and making money, that's understandable too. So what I'm talking about is not malice or something like that on the part of people. I'm, I'm saying we're all part of the same system. And so I had a chance by looking at a pharmacological kind of concept, reductionism, comparing with the holist concept, which that word did hardly exist. But they're, they're very different. And so one of the famous philosophers of years past in Greece, for example, They knew that too. There was Aristotle who said, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, all of a sudden, then you look at Aristotle, you look at Socrates, Plato, uh, and all the rest of those great philosophers in ancient times when they were the ones starting even the concept of democracy. They were thinking. They were really thinking about this whole concept of people working together, you know, let's solve problems in that sort of way to some extent. Uh, and, uh, so, and we, we got drug over the time, We we got pulled down in a sense over time of ending up thinking about one thing at a time, especially when we got, you know, the innovation of, uh, of, uh, mechanics, if you will, the physical world, we could start doing things in that way and make some money. And, uh, so that's where we got into
1: So you touched on this idea that the creation of these fields and the lack of a focus on nutrition was perhaps intentional as a opportunity for business. And not only from my perspective was that intentional, but it's also continually perpetuated, which I think is a a massive con. So in in the late 1970s, you shared really two enormous groundbreaking ideas. One, you said it's nutrition, not genes, that controls a disease. And number two, you said you can turn off disease with nutrition, which were two really kind of polarizing ideas, even to this day, but certainly in the 1970s. And at that time, you had been nominated for president of uh, this important society, and they actually had petitioned to throw you out of the society as a result of sharing these radical ideas. So could we get into a little bit more detail and talk about the ways that you feel the medical and pharmaceutical industries suppress nutrition information to this day?
0: Yeah, and for me, I mean, I had my own experiences, and they weren't very pleasant. Uh, I, I was really having opportunities to, you know, work at a fairly senior level uh, with FDA and other organizations, and I was on the National Academy Panels and that sort of thing, testifying before Congress. That, that last one, testifying before Congress on a, net, on a report having to do with diet and cancer, uh, obviously when I got in these situations of those kind of testables if you will I I, that I would be de- asked question more or less in reference to my own work and so I would start talking about the protein thing maybe I, I knew that was kind of dangerous but anyhow right, there it is, I can't walk away from facts and so animal protein is a problem you know some of the people who knew I were, well, you you from the farm, you, you did your thesis on promoting, what are you talking about but you know that that kind of conversation sometimes occurred, um, and but I said what I said, and I was, like, you know, caused some problems for some folks, and uh, and then, I could tell a number of different stories. I'm telling that sort of the new book, if you will, because, uh, the the pushback, you know, it was represented by individuals. You know, sort of coming at me doing this and that. But on the other hand, they in turn are representing the whole concept, you know, of major industries. I'm thinking of two in particular the livestock industry and the health industry, especially the pharmacological industry. And that's why I say I was just fortunate. I was in both of those committees at the same time early in my career and it was just totally incidentally I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> really it just so happens that it just I had this opportunity to see the contrast and I see that contrast all the time it plays out in government and uh, and then we get into politics and that's another sad story you know everybody wants to you know have their own little corner of information their own piece of information and promote it and so, I'm. I'm right now, I'm actually almost demoralized with what has become of our society. You know, after seeing we have the chance now, these days, to see what we have, and compare that with what existed 10, 15, 20, 50, you know, 100 years ago, and seeing how to transform it into where we are now. And I find it really troubling because now you got lots of interests, you know. Somebody's working on this, and somebody's working on that, and they have their own interests. And I say I can, I can understand all that, but what I can't understand is the failure of of us being able to talk to other people, you know, in very different points of view. So I think that's something you know, the future is going to have to wrestle with. Your generation, definitely.
1: So, so you touched on this new book that you're working on, and I believe that almost became your second book before Whole. In fact, I think you wrote something like 60 pages, uh, and then you just put it aside and decided to focus on a concept that was a little bit more positive, which became your book Whole. Why have you now decided to share all of this kickback and all these lies that you have experienced throughout your career? Why, why do you feel now is the time for that?
0: Well... The question comes up for me, and that's, I get asked this question a lot too. How comes? How come the medical schools don't teach this? That's a constant. You know, how come we haven't heard this before? Uh, and and, and finally you finally hear that enough, you start wondering to yourself, how come we don't know this? I mean, I, I went, I was in that path in my own career, so, and I got the pushback that I got, and I. Uh, what do you do? I, I, I finally sit down and I said, I think I'm going to tell what I've seen. Um, and uh, so I'm getting to some detail, a lot of things. And some of those decisions that are made, are being made, is really terrible. I mean, it's, it's, it's setting a pattern for the future is just simply nonsense. Um, you, you may know the concept uh, called synthetic biology synthetic biology is is uh, is a popular it's getting to be a popular concept it's now it's got some words to wrap around the idea uh, it's, in, in a sense we've been doing it for a lot of, for, but there's this point of view that our future is going to be in a, in a way synthetic you know that uh, we'll have medicines for everything. I just this morning just this morning read, about vaccines now being in plants. Vaccines being in plants can be a break. You know, the, the, what they're looking at is is some phenomena that represents a, a, a memory of what happens to your body after you eat the plants. But plants work in all kinds of different ways. They affect the hormonal system, they affect the enzymatic systems. they affect even neurological systems and so forth and so on. And so the mindset of a lot of people is, we'll get a chemical for that. We'll, we'll, we'll fix it all up so that in the future we'll be walking time bombs, let's so say. <laughs> you know, it's all about chemistry. And uh, chemistry is a great science, but I just, we don't need to live that way. And you know, Rick me being back to being on the farm and outdoors all the time in the field just really appreciate what without knowing it appreciate it. You, you, when you get to know something is when you leave it and you look back but you know i was i was a hunter i fished i trapped fur-bearing animals of all things but that's what we did the farm boys did in those days i milked cows uh and uh you know you live in that world i i love to farm and and then you come and you discover this other stuff. So I have an appreciation for that kind of thinking. And now I've, unfortunately, in a sense, I've got appreciation for how we do things wrong. And so I wanted to basically describe in this book one segment of our knowledge that's not well known. That's what's going on behind the scenes. What's going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain, if you will, is stuff that the public almost never gets to see. And uh, some of it is, I have to say, is malicious. There are there, some folks who are just trying to solve problems so they can make some money. And other people are to get drug into it because, it's, for whatever reason, they really believe that that maybe is the solution. So um, we're we faced with this very difficult, in a sense, difficult future until we re- begin to resolve what is this contrast between the whole and the parts.
1: You have this focus on pursuing truth, which is something that you attribute to your father as being this early character trait that was instilled in you. How have you continued to persevere in the face of so much scrutiny and malicious actors in pursuing this truth what has been kind of the driving force behind that for you
0: just one thing and what he said i mean as i said my father only had two years of elementary school education and i was the oldest son where i was close to him and uh, he was he wanted me to get an education in fact you know, I was supposed to go to high school in Leesburg nearby, but that was a small school. Only 10% of the people went off to college. And so he wanted me to, uh, if possible, course I played and he didn't have the money. So I had to drive 102 miles a day from where I was down to Georgetown in Washington. And it was really a really good public high school. And, and, and so he was so dedicated to my getting an education. And he just watched. Hey, just sort of everything I was doing, I was always, you know, watching over. I mean, he was. He also had a tremendous reputation in Loudoun County for his uh, integrity. And so, you know, you you can't lose. You can't lose that. You can't lose it. So, that, that's what. And when we get an education, tell the truth. The, tell the truth. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. It just doesn't go away.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you have an expected publication timeline for your new book? Or I don't know as soon the... as I
0: can. I'm I'm about uh, maybe eighty percent done now. I, I'm kind of hoping I'll be done by first of July. Okay,
1: and then yeah, it will I, go through the editing process. And
0: yeah, I I've got to share it with some other people because I I don't like one one side. Of, I don't like criticizing other people by name. What are you gonna do? I mean, you see it, and there it happened. And in science, the ones I'm talking about, there are names in the literature. And the actions are there, you can see in black and white. So how do you handle that? Do you make up names? I can't make up names. Yeah, so that's... I'm gonna get in trouble, I think, before it's over, more trouble.
1: I have a, a deep appreciation for your desire to share this information. I feel like that's an important part of us moving forward and breaking free of all of these lies that we face in the industry. So I think we need more voices like yours to speak up and, and present that. So I appreciate you doing things like that that are uncomfortable for, for the greater good. So you've said before that you believe the future of medicine is treating disease with nutrition. You've talked about that a little bit here. I think that's a future we'd all love to see, but there seem to be many powerful forces that stand in the way of creating that future. What do you think will be the driving force to create a future where medicine is focused more on nutrition than this reductionist model.
0: It's starting to happen now, in a sense, because if we look at the data on the chief causes of death, you know, we got a lot of records. We we can we're pretty good at you know, recording that kind of information. And um the thought that um so many of the diseases that actually kill us before our time are strongly related to nutrition. Number one. Uh people are starting to ask "What You you mean to tell me that if you eat up a reverse heart disease as my friends showed, like Esselstyn, you mean to tell me that that also maybe works for chronic kidney disease? I say, yeah. So, the, you know, the, that kind of information is coming out. My good friends, uh, Dr. Caldwell Esselton, Dr. Dean Ornish, they, uh, in the about 1990s, about the, was the time the China study came out in the New York Times, and uh, they were sort of messing around doing some of that kind of thing too and uh, so you know and they were greeted with I mean that wasn't they got their own pushback in a sense too not quite the way I did but nonetheless they were doing something to reverse heart disease my god reverse heart disease what are you talking about you know kind of thing so I'm good friends with them and they but nonetheless now that's almost like it's beginning to a point where a lot of people don't know that still but it's kind of getting out there a little bit. And the idea of turning cancer on and off like we did in the laboratory too. Uh, This this effect of nutrition is not just about not getting a disease. It's also about actually capturing it, you know, stop and make it go back to normal health. That's an exciting proposition. Who knows that? You've had experiences yourself. I mean, that, that really... I mean, who who you look away from that? That's that's it, and it's the same same formula. It's the same formula, just working at different stages of disease. Now, sometimes diseases you can get out of hand, That's it's maybe too late. But uh, a lot of diseases are really quite uh, amenable. They uh, the right, cancer one has been difficult because cancer that does make a lot of money. <laughs> You know, with all the chemotherapy and stuff like that. Well, uh, that uh, we've gone through thirty years now. Well, it's only now that's passed, but between nineteen seventy and two thousand ten, at that period of time, um, that's when the so-called war on cancer started. And now, what that meant for the most part is having an opportunity to discover chemicals that might cure cancer. That's what it was said. It was the initial administration. And that was, you know, obviously that's appealing to hear such things like that. Well, we went through 30 years, spent billions of dollars making chemicals. They're called cytotoxic chemotherapy. The idea there is that the cancer gradually evolves and develops and takes on its own characteristics, its own lifetime, so to speak. And, And so the idea is that if we can find a chemical to kill those cancer cells, targeted, it's called targeted drug therapy, that's the way to deal with it. We went through 30 years of that kind of stuff, creating these chemicals to kill cancer cells. That's that's chemotherapy. After 30 years, looking back, there's a group of Australian and American scientists at the time, they had access to a huge database of cancer victims over that period of time. What kind of drugs were taken. And so they had a chance to look at all that data to see if they were working. Weren't working. Weren't working. And so then they turn their attention to something a little bit different. They called it immunotherapy. That's what kind of the popular thing now. I don't think that's going to work either. Uh, but it's, they're always looking for a chemical solution to things. And, uh, and so and that's always chemical solution to everything. you rather than just standing back and even hearing the word nutrition. Those people working in that field never taught nutrition. So we have to suffer today looking at the media. Talk about, listen to the scientists, listen to the scientists. You know, like the recent uh, uh, COVID thing. You know, that sort of, listen to the scientists. You know, not one of those people have had training nutrition. Not one. So their solution is to get your vaccine. You know, and of course, I got data to the contrary. Uh, and it's the same story as it's existed with heart disease, cancer, and all the rest in years past. They're doing the same thing over again. And so, uh, that, but then he starts asking the question, how come people can't understand this thing about nutrition? And and I, I try to think of it, I say, as much, best I can in a positive way without getting really upset with the crooks. <laughs> but, I mean, that's really what happens. They're They're just so resistant to think outside the box. I so don't want to hear it, and so um, it's, it's going to have to change our, our, our mindset of what matters. And it's hard. We get all kinds of discussions on that, though, on the history of it, on the philosophy of it, you know, and all the rest. But all they all point to the same thing: we'd rather be ignorant and solve something with a with a wrench or a hammer. You know, right now. <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh stupid. It's stupid.
1: It angers me, all that stuff you just said. And I've only really been exposed to this over the last eight or so years, coming up on nine. But it's been over 60 years for you going through this. And I can understand how that must feel in just constantly facing a brick wall when it comes to the medical community and just not wanting to to listen to you. And that's really, really a tragedy when 80 to 90% of cancers could be uh, per- totally prevented or sure. cured from nutrition. And we just turn a blind eye and we focus on these chemical potential chemical solutions to a problem that's rooted in nutrition. It's really it's really tragic. Yeah. So at the beginning of the pandemic, you mentioned COVID. You published a paper suggesting that what you saw in China had great relevance for COVID-19. And despite nearly 400 publications to your name and being well-known in the community, two of the best-known journals in the world, Nature and Lancet, two journals that you have published in before, when even review your results, they clearly didn't want this information to get out. Why do you think that is
0: well that's that's a, one of the more recent things of course that I've seen it's very very just annoying um it used to be almost it was almost like a religion uh in science uh you know you work in and you do your stuff you, you we the the whole word the word science classical science to me be something different than what is a popular perception. In other words, it has to do with the fact that, as scientists, you're expected to be skeptical. You can ask any question you want. You know, if you see something that you know, is worth investigating, you should be entitled to investigate. That's the job of scientists, especially in academia. And uh, with not knowing what the end is in sight, you simply investigate things. And it's structured in such a way that you hypothesize you, we can hypothesize the moon is made out of cheese. That's fair enough. Whatever you want to say. But if you have the time, you got the money to do it, but of course, you, you go back in that skepticism, you organize some studies. You get some results. And you do it totally transparently. Anybody can see what you're doing. You don't try to hide things. You're not trying to... You know, okay, i got a secret here and I'm going to find out, you know, how I can solve this or something like this. You do the study in that manner and then uh, always open to, as I say, criticism, always open to exchange of ideas and stuff like this. And finally, you write it all down where you summarize what you think you forgot. And then you submit it for publication. it's a very, as I say, it's almost like a sacred kind of, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but it's, it's a very precious concept. And when you submit it, you get reviewed by colleagues, professional colleagues. And the way we do it, uh, we send it in. We always get two reviews, sometimes three if the two are divergent. And then they send it back to the author. And the author has a chance to answer the questions or explain better, whatever it is. And then finally, it's determined whether or not to publish it. That's peer review. It's just like the legal system. We have you know trials and you know that's a, it's a sort of the same sort of concept. The idea is to discover the truth. that's what all it was, it's all it is. and so we all we all get uh, reviewed, and in recent times, the one you just referred to, I sent that in two leading journals because we had data from China, you know in our study there, and I, we did that study twice. A lot of people don't know the second time. The first time was 1983. That's the one that New York Times called the Grand Prix. We went back six years later and we did it again. The second time it was kind of fun. Uh, it was a joint, essentially a joint study between mainland China and Taiwan. They're kind of you know at odds right now, uh, and so uh, and that was I said it was kind of fun to get that going. I think that's the only research project that's going on between those two areas. Now they got more like guns pointed at their heads, but in any case, we got results there. Almost 9,000 people, 8,990 to be exact. We had collected blood samples from them, urine samples, all the rest like we did the first time. And I worked on this thing on the liver cancer where I started my career with the kids. Liver cancer is a serious kind of virus, disease. It's more potent than the COVID. Something like... Uh, between 500 and 800,000 people a year die in the world. It's not well known all that much, but it's a virus. It's a virus disease. And so we collected all kind of information on nutrition and those people. We came out with some results that were absolutely spectacular. People who eating a little animal food, and I have to tell you, very small amounts, on average it's only about 10% of what we do here, and, uh, and at that time, it was late 1980s. Uh, people consumed little animals. They were the ones that did not form antibodies to the virus. They did not form antibodies to the virus. And they did not, uh, well, they did some other things too, but they didn't do that. They got the liver cancer. The virus comes in, in theory, lands on them. And uh, they got liver cancer and died the mortality rates is very high. People consuming plants, getting a virus, if you will, they formed antibodies. They did not get liver cancer. And we did some stuff in the lab at that time too, this is the early nineties. With, with animals we saw the same thing. The people the animals in this case eat more animal protein. It suppressed the mechanisms we naturally have in our bodies to resist the disease. are called T-cells. Now they're subject of millions of I don't know hundreds of millions at least, dollars being spent right now to try to find this as a solution for the viral disease, looking at T-cells, some chemical to find T-cells. God, we did that, you know, as I say, now it's 30 years ago. And eating animal protein suppresses T-cells. T-cells are good things. It's a default mechanism. We have in our bodies. And so, you know, all, all of that, I mean, I am I know that it feels fairly well that way. We sent it for publication. They wouldn't even send it out for review. That's the key. Now, the journalists can turn, turn back manuscripts or send it and say, oh, it's not in our territory. But not in this case. What I was sending is right, right smack dab in the middle of their interest. They said, we're not going to look at it. And so... You wonder. And then I come to find a little bit later, they're part of the game plan. And they didn't want the public to know. They didn't want the public to know this. And uh, somebody, is, I can't tell names and stuff like that, but it really blocked it. And so when the, when the virus came along, I i didn't believe them because I saw the media, the words they were saying. And I was not feeling enough to know how you word things. They were saying things a very sneaky way of, and then you all of realize over seventy percent of their budget comes from pharmaceutical industries. They either say it that way, or they lose their, you know, their advertisement. And so, um, when it came on, we're, we're older, my wife and I, of course, we're eighties at at that time. I, I, really, I didn't want to get the vaccine because I I did not believe it would work. I can't be a hundred percent certain on anything, you can't do that, but the odds as far as I'm concerned are totally tilted, you know, against that. So we didn't get it so we get the COVID. No problems.
1: Yeah, you just got COVID a few months ago. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, that's the way it is and I just it's I mean I, I we we're taking a chance, let's face it. We we not know for sure, but the for me, that's just science. You look at the odds. You look at the statistics. You look at the arguments that are being made in order to get that, and I didn't believe it. So, uh, did you ever get a response from those journals? No, ever well, I finally sent it to a third journal. They did publish it. Uh, a little bit difficult there, but they did. It was a European journal, lesser known. So it's a, it's now in publication.
1: But the first two never responded to you. No,
0: they would never do that. Wow. That's, so that's the system we live in.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. It's really, really criminal. All right. So to shift gears a little bit and hopefully end on a bit more of a positive notes, what are you really excited right now with developments in the world of nutrition research?
0: I'm not terribly excited <laughs> on anything, but no, there, there's trends. Um, right now there's the, uh, American College of Lifestyle Medicine that's kind of a little bit on the periphery. Uh, there's other organizations uh, like called the Plantrition Project. I've you know, been the key speaker of both places. Uh, I mean, there's some of that. And there's another one. I, I really like another organization called the uh, National Health Association. It used to be called the National Hygiene Society. It's the oldest one of all, 75 years old. They're out of Florida, and I spoke there, gosh, thirty years ago, thirty-four years ago. They're coming up with a new, uh, new uh, con- convention in Cleveland in June. Uh, so you got these different nuggets, and and then and elsewhere in the world, we've got uh, different organizations in a similar vein. I've probably spoken to seven or eight places where it's actually called the College of Lifestyle Medicine. I've been on the, of all things, on the Russian TV TAS had me, interviewed me, and then they wanted me to come back and be on the TV. So I was on the TV, the one TV station I have for the whole country, like four to five million people there. And China has done the same thing, a lot of countries. And some of them, a lot of them have been there in person. And uh, so I, all, all of a sudden I'm feeling uh, I feel a little sense of hope because uh, what I'm finding is that there's a lot of people I mean, you, you learned your own sort of lesson in a way. Somehow, people are, they're hearing this and they don't like that. I mean, who likes the, these stories? People are learning, they are learning. So i um, you know, I want to get to see it, but uh, the words got, to, I mean, you can't fool the people, all of the, some of the people, some of the time, whoever said that, but you know, you can't fool all the people all the time. And I think we're at that stage. I think we're at the stage. That, uh, and it's all about plants. That's where it is. And uh, and then you'll, the rest of the time, enjoy your life. Eat the right thing. And and the other thing we, we need to, people need to know. A lot of people will try this. We got these things called jump starts. You know, Gwen did hers, and some others, my son uh, have done theirs. and. But what happens in ten days' time, people see the results, they're impressed. but they don't stay with it. And so I got a, a very close colleagues in Italy where I've lectured a lot there, who have done taken it a step further and it's really good. This is what the, what they've just what they did. Uh, so they do it for ten days, they feel better, you know, and they fall back into what they did before. Well, it turns out that what they did, they started out with a group of people for nine days. And the ninth day, they're feeling good. Would you like to do it another 15 days? And at that point in time, their heads are in the right place. Yeah, yeah, okay. They're feeling good about it. So they do it for another 15 days. And then at the end of that 15 days, would you like to do it for another 15 days? They did it four times. Finally now, they're up to like 68 days, I think it is. What's that? That's almost three months. At that time, now their taste preferences have changed. And when they got to that point... Oh, yeah, now 100%. Stay with it. So there's something here about the fact that we respond to things in the medical area, at least, or health area, according to preferences that are kind of stuck in our brain and all the rest of it. But if we give give ourselves enough time, which I would argue is like one to two months, maybe, you get to that point then, you don't go back. I mean, I did it myself, my wife and I. You know, I'm drinking milk all like crazy and, and all like that and so we did, gradually did it over 10 years because my wife is very good about that because she's the one that was feeding our five kids and she really got us all on board and <laughs> we had to eat what she, what she did and uh, she's the one who made me write the China study because I was complaining way back when and she said why don't you just go out and tell the public <laughs> and uh always came with the New York Times story. When that came out, the headline, you said Grand Prix or something like that. I said, Jesus, I don't, I don't know whether I want this here or not, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I was also almost inclined to go back and say, hey, you know, you kind of overstated a bit. Don't be so dramatic. So I came home and talked to her. I said, do I contact the Times with Jane Bodie? Or I'll call Jane back and say, you know, you you kind of went a little bit too far. Uh and she said that the the newspaper had, you know, changed the title a little bit. And so I said, What do, what would I do? Do I and she said, No. Said, Tell the truth. <laughs> so the just that's what it is. Whether they liked it or not, you know, it had to go out there. So
1: Yeah, I love that. Your wife has been such a important part of this journey for you and just support you along the whole way i had the honor of meeting her yesterday she's just a a delightful woman so you both are are really fortunate to have found each other which is also a really cool story that we don't have time for right now but you have been incredibly gracious with your time dr campbell i really appreciate everything that you have done i would not be plant-based if it weren't for you the vegan gym would not exist without you and i just i want to do everything I can to continue building on this movement that you have created. So just from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate everything that you you have contributed to not only my life, but this uh, to the world as a
0: whole. Thank you. So still, still at it. trying to do the same thing. We've got, I think now about nine of us in our family, we got 11 grandchildren. and Now they're all coming on board and doing things and, it's kind of exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you have a wonderful family. So what is the best way that listeners can support your work?
0: Um, or we have a website called org. Now that's with Cornell. It was a class I was teaching at Cornell until they yanked it out of the catalog. That's another story. Uh, but we came back. I put it online, and, uh, which was in the early stages, no, no one believed much in that work in that way, but we did. Uh, we became number one in the country uh, and the, uh, Gwen is on our board now. And so uh, that's been uh, that's been very uh, rewarding. We've got something now going in the Dominican Republic where my daughter is on the whole question concerned the environment that's uh, very exciting it's set, Center for Nutrition Studies. They, they put it in my name. I wasn't too fancy for that, but it's got my name. That That's there. People can sign on to it and get a certificate from Cornell. Awesome. It's just going over quite well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a hugely influential program. I've been through it. I know a lot of other people who have gone through it and yeah, yeah, it's really impactful. So again, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for all of your work. You also mentioned Gwen who's sitting off to the side. So I want to give a special thank you to Gwen for setting up this interview and uh, looking forward to jumping into the VegFest right now. So thanks a lot.
0: Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you.